What's going on, nerds? Before we get to this episode of Nerds on History, I want to take a second to talk to you guys about our other podcast, Nerds on Film. Every week, Brian, Sarah, Kevin, and myself talk about movies, we make some jokes, and we say a lot of bad words. And if you're a fan of bad words, you're going to want to go listen to that podcast after you're done listening to this one, because Nerds on History won't let us say f***, c***, mother huge and tiny little or enjoy. Romania, 1456. Springtime at the castle of Vlad III, Prince of Wallachia. Your most supreme royal majesty, Vlad III, Prince of Wallachia, impaler of the innocent, assumed mayor of Transylvania four years running, and ombudsperson of the Spearmaking Guild, Chapter 35. Your two o'clock is here. Oh, yes, yes, very good. Uh, send, uh, send this two o'clock in. Hi, how you doing? Marty. Marty, yes, yes. Sit, sit, Marty. Yes, sir. Tell me, uh, where, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Yonkers. Yonkers. Yonkers, it's just small province in Romania. Most people don't know of it. No, really, actually, not very nice gardens. But anyway, beside the point. What, what brings you to my court? Ah, well, I'm here to talk to you about your marketing numbers. My numbers? Yes. Not the numbers of debt. No, 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 you're up in those numbers. Those are good. Yes, I yeah, have those are on a steady, steady rise, yeah. V, can I call you V? No. V, I'll be perfectly honest with you. <laughs> are you all right? Yes, I'm fine. <coughs> it's my asthma. Go ahead, go ahead. V, I'll be perfectly honest with you. You're just not reaching your audience. They're making fun of you quite a bit. I mean... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Amongst Slavs, 18 to 40... Not doing so hot. Germany, I won't even talk about. Hungary, oh boy, and um, the Ottomans. Don't go. talk to me about the Turks. Don't go there. <laughs> Do you I know, know it's bad. Do you know what they're calling you? Yes, I know what they're calling me. They're calling you Vlad the Inhaler. I know. I have asthma. I've had it since I was a child. What am I supposed to do with that? Tell me. What we need is an event. Something that will really yeah. show off a different side of Vlad. Okay. Something that will get them to really know who you really are. Okay, all right. Like what? Like what? Oh, I was thinking some sort of, like, picnic. Or, uh, or you know, there's a farmer's market in your village, right? You make an appearance there. And you get the people to go out and see you. You shake some hands. You kiss some babies. You kiss some women. And, you know... You're this is, already on the rise. This is good. I like this. is somewhat in line with plan that I was already coming up. Oh, really? With. Yes, yes. Yeah, well, what's your idea? Maybe we can come up with a, you know, a compromise. Well, okay. I like the farmer's market. We bring people together. Okay. We perhaps sit them down. We get them to uh, to join us in meal. We have delicious delicious cakes made for oh, them. Oh, see, there you go. See, showing off your soft yes, side. Yes, and as they are sitting and they are enjoying these delicious morsels and they are in this kind of gastronomical ecstasy, we impale them with a spike and then prop them up and let their corpses rot for when the Turks invade. <laughs> oh! Do you have asthma too? 
Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. My friend, how are you? I've had a sudden cough. So sudden is literally like seconds ago before we start recording. So if you hear me hack a little bit, sorry. But um, other than that, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I think I'm getting a little uh, lame-mizzed out. Uh-oh. Yeah. Don't say that. Why? I don't believe it. I've got two more weeks left. It'll be fine. Another great weekend. The reception has been awesome for the show. It's kind of just like having two families now. Yeah. Well, now I have three. I have my normal family. <laughs> I have the Nerdonomy family. And then... Your Les Mis family. I got the Les Mis family, exactly. And there's that family of possums that live in your backyard. You have four now. <sighs> yeah. They count. They count, Brian. They're not my family. They're a family, but they're not my family. Fair enough. Yeah. God. Well, it's discriminatory against possums. I don't understand. Uh, I don't think that's really discrimination. I think that's just logic. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, I'm pissed. Why are you pissed? I'm upset. Hmm? I'm genuinely upset. I'm angry, if you can't tell. Oh, I know why. Yeah. Yeah, you know why. I was teased. I was teased by the BBC today, and they did not follow through with their promise to tell us about the lost Doctor Who episodes. I understand. This has absolutely nothing to do with history. Absolutely nothing. Well, it has to do with television history. So. Okay, fair enough. It does have, have something to do with history. But it's important. And let us not forget, we are nerds on history. And nerds came first. We need to talk about this. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are Whovians like myself and you have not heard the rumors that have been circulating around since June, there are lost Doctor Who episodes from the first six seasons. This is the original Doctor Who uh, seasons, right? The, the classic Doctor Who, if you will starring William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton. And many of these episodes were recorded over by the BBC years ago, but they did manage to uh, to sell 16mm copies to other countries from around the world who were airing Doctor Who, some of which were in Africa. And the rumor is that from Ethiopia, a large cache has been discovered. Now, I've heard theories ranging from 12 missing episodes have been found to all 106 missing episodes that have been found and for the very first time a rumor like this is finally being uh validated by the bbc they are called a press conference that was supposed to be today that is today the time of this recording and they delayed it till thursday yeah so by the time this episode is released hopefully we'll know what's really going on and you know what the bbc spokesman said what well the fans have been waiting for 50 years two more days won't kill them Mm. How dare you? And how, how ominous, too. How dare you? This, if there was ever a need for a Dalek and a little extermination, it would be right now. I think that's a bit extreme, don't it you is, think? It is, and it's justified. I'm just saying, don't don't play with my heartstrings. Both, all, both of them. Does anyone have a sonic screwdriver? <laughs> if we had a sonic screwdriver, we wouldn't have to worry. We could just fix all the episodes and bring them back, but... Anyway, I had to talk about it. I had to tell you why I'm so upset. But I'm I'm feeling better. I've come to accept it. It's going to happen on Thursday. And uh, I'm very excited about tonight's episode. So I'm going to be okay. Okay. Moving on. I'm sure all the other Whovians out there are equally as excited as you are. Uh, including Sarah, more than likely. Oh, I know. Yeah. Sarah and I share a very strong Doctor Who bond. And uh, this is exciting. I was mm-hmm. able to break the news to her. So she she's very excited. Good. Shall we uh, get on with some listener feedback? Yes, shall we? This week in listener feedback. It's kind of a light week this week. 
a very light week. I think partially due to the issues that we've had with the website, but we are uh, fixing those, and it should be a little easier to give feedback to us. Bear yeah. with us. Keep in mind, you can email us directly. You can also uh, leave us messages on Facebook, which just happens to be where our first piece of listener feedback comes from. <clears throat> so Melissa uh, would like to uh, educate me a little bit. In my episode that uh, we did on Woodstock, what Sarah and I did on Woodstock, mm-hmm. uh, there was a reference to Fred Durst and to a famous song that he sings. Oh, right. Uh, where I did not quite understand the meaning of the word cookie. Yeah. Turns out cookie is another word for lady parts. And I didn't know that. And now now I do. And I feel yeah. kind of dumb. But that's okay. Uh, she also goes on to say that she's a Wiccan. And if she has any questions, I'll let her know. Unfortunately, she sent this the day after we recorded our episode. On <laughs> yeah, we did. It was like, <laughs> mm. so Melissa, uh, I'm sure you've heard it already by now. Please do let us know. Let us know your thoughts on Wicca, and please feel free to share it with us, and we will share it with our audience. We also have another piece. This comes from Lauren. She says, "Hello, nerds. I've been following the podcast for a while now, and I'm a big fan." Not sure if any of you are supporters of crowdfunded projects, but I thought I'd send this your way because it seems somewhat appropriate. And she sent us a link. I don't know if you've had a chance to have a look at it yet, but it's like a nerdy quote of the day calendar that they're trying to get going on on, uh, Kickstarter. Interesting. It's got about a third of what it needs to actually happen, but it's still got several days left. So I looked at it. I think it's pretty cool. I'm going to give like $10, $15, whatever the entry level is. Because uh, that's all I can afford because I'm a poor nerd. How much do they need? I think it was like 2500 around there, and they've already got close to 1000 Oh, okay. So they're about a third of the way there. And listeners, if this is something you're interested in, feel free to uh, to head on over and uh, have a look at that. You can find it on a Kickstarter, and it's uh, Ridiculously inspi- Inspirational and Nerdy Quotes. If a day every one calendar. of our listeners gave a dollar, we could we can make that project. happen. Yeah, yeah we c- they can get more than that. One dollar, folks. Every one of you. Come on. Let's do it. Make it happen. Maybe $2. Maybe 3 in case somebody bails out. But $2. Yeah. $2 is, I mean, please, you can get gum for $2. And then donate $2 to us, too. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> Throw it in there early. Mm-hmm. Uh, then she just continues and closes by saying, keep doing what you do because it's great. Well, Lauren, keep doing what you do because you're great. Thank you for being such a loyal listener and an active participant on our Facebook page, I will say. Yeah, huzzah. Now, we do have one more piece of feedback, quick one, from Kind of Epic Show on Twitter. I love those guys. They're great. They gave us two shout-outs this week in succession with great pictures referring to a candle shop where you can see other kinds of witchy-related items and uh, a place where they can get wands, too, talking a little bit about wand lore. And I think this actually were both from the same place, but it was a witch-themed shop. So Very cool. Mm-hmm. Check it out on our uh, Twitter page. It is a favorited tweet, so you can see both of them. All right. Well, <clears throat> that was a quick week in listener feedback, but hey, that's okay, because uh, we're always happy to hear your thoughts. And please, like I said, email us directly, head over to our Facebook page, and bear with us while we're working out a couple of issues with the website. Uh, but please feel free yeah. to send us your feedback in the meantime. So since you heard our cold open today... Usually our cold opens are kind of random. Sometimes they're connected to the topic. Today, really, we're going to talk about Gumby. Absolutely. The history of Gumby is fascinating and is uh, deeply steeped in the traditions of Halloween, which would be a lie. Uh, no, <laughs> we are not talking about Gumby. Uh, although, oh, no, vampires. Yes. <laughs> Probably the, the complete polar opposite of what Gumby would be. <laughs> I think Gumby would actually make an excellent vampire. 
Well, if you think about it, he's a shapeshifter already, right? He can change his shape. Uh, he's already kind of disformed and discolored, which, you know, true vampires were, were depicted as such for, for many, many years before they became but all sexy and shiny. instead of sucking blood, he sucks joy out of here? Sure, some variation on it. I think that he could hide a formidable mouth of teeth, and I, I really think that Gumby would be an excellent vampire. I'm voting Gumby for vampire. That's what I'm doing. Yes, we'll certainly hold those elections sometime and never. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yes, to the topic, we are going to talk about vampires. And we we talked about this earlier. We promised we would, yes. Yeah, and we're doing our whole Halloween-themed month. Halloween-themed month. So we are going to have a lot of fun with this. We've done some really great research. I think vampires are absolutely fascinating. I've been interested in vampires for a really long time, ever since I was a child. And uh, they they really, truly represent one of the most iconic staples of Halloween. Vampires are long been associated with, with things that are scary and frightening, and people love to be scared. Mm-hmm. And, and despite our more recent attempts to completely destroy the vampire image, <coughs> Twilight, it still is frightening and still very pervasive after so many centuries. Mm-hmm. Yes, and like any cultural icon, the image has changed, and it will continue to change, whether it's for positive or for negative, because the vampires that you know of, not even the Stephanie Meyer-inspired ones, but the vampires that are more influenced by Count Dracula, like mm-hmm. the Anne Rice ones, the more gothically-oriented vampires, those were also a shift away from the, the classical depiction of vampires. And even the, where the term vampire was developed was a classical shift from what the original vampires were. So it's yeah. it, it has continued to evolve as these things do. And no doubt it'll probably evolve into space. I think there's already been vampire space, space vampires. movies now. Yeah. Oh, there you go. But I, I think there'll be even more. I think that's where we're headed. If anyone has Roger Corman's email, please uh, forward <laughs> that to him, because that sounds like gold to him. <laughs> Eric, being that you're the one who has more knowledge of the ancient history, where does this start? Well, that's a good question. The, the truth is vampires are not exclusive to Europe. Even though the vampire lore of the past three or four hundred years has had its most iconic form in Europe, there are vampires around the globe. They're very much uh, the idea of what is known as the revenant. And this is something that is uh, cross-cultural around the world. And a revenant is essentially a being that is undead, that started being alive, died, and came back. Uh, usually with the very negative goal of impacting people's lives that it had known previously. They tend to be very jealous creatures. They tend to be things that uh, are not positive. And there are many myths that are associated with the positive return from the dead, right? Benevolent spirits and what have you coming to protect loved ones. This is the opposite. This is something that is draining of a life force. This is something that is very malevolent. And this is something that you find even in ancient history, Mesopotamia, for example, you have the, a, a terrible, terrifying demon-like creature, uh, the Leletu, which was actually very closely associated with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, the Leletu was thought to have helped bring into existence Gilgamesh because he was he was two thirds god, and it uh, it was very much like a like an incubus, if you will. It was very draining. Uh, it was a terrible creature that was almost kind of uh, known for its for its sexual depravity, which is interesting because vampires would not be associated with sex for a very, very long time. Not until the Victorian era. Not until the Victorian era. But you do have an example of it kind of being associated with it in ancient times. 
And this then is believed to maybe have influenced a demon that is associated with uh, very ancient Hebrew traditions as well, the Lilith. And this is something that is debated. Nobody really knows. The, the, the words themselves sound very similar. And in uh, Aramaic, you have uh, Lilith, which literally means darkness, right? So you can see where the, the negative association is coming with, with, that, with that word. And as that passes into Lilu and Lilith, later into Hebrew, you find it uh, taking the form of, again, another demon. Very, very ancient writing in, in Hebrew. Well, Lilith is also the supposed, I mean, there's no evidence of it in the Bible, but supposedly Adam's first wife. That is correct. That, right. is, uh, that is something that has arisen in her mythology in later times, uh, probably in and around 6th or 8th century CE. Right. And there's some lore that supposes that she was the first vampire because of, I guess, her being spurned from... I don't, I don't quite know what the connecting piece is that led to that, but I do remember hearing lore about that. Well, she's not a very nice demon. Uh, as demons generally are not, and she's a she's known to have been the killer of children, a slayer of children, and is associated with the blood of children as well. And this is interesting because this is where you find uh, that kind of typical tie-in with blood that you associate with European vampires, uh, which probably not directly related to this, but an interesting kind of parallel. My point is though that you have vampire type lore that exists uh, in biblical times, pre-biblical times, into, into the ancient world, uh, there are thoughts that it could even be prehistoric. If you go to uh, Europe, in uh, northern Europe, and particularly over into England and Ireland, you find many examples of these monolithic-type burials that uh, Dave and I talked about on our Let's Dial It Back episode. And some of these these grave markers, which are these massive, massive slabs of stone that are set up in kind of like a bench type shape, are thought potentially to have meant to trap the individual who's buried underneath. So it wasn't so much that these were done for the revered dead, but rather for the feared dead, for the ones that could return to life. Interesting. And obviously, it, it, there's no way to, to prove that 100%, but it is believed that that could be one reason for the, the development of those kind of monolithic structures. Where does it go from there? Well, as it often does... Many of these traditions and beliefs passed most likely from Mesopotamia into nearby Greece, and then from Greece they passed into what is the, the, the Slavic area of the world. So we're talking about Romania, we're talking about Croatia, we're talking about Hungary, and other parts of Eastern Europe, which would have been heavily, heavily influenced by these, these types of stories. In a time before the spread of Christianity. And it's very fascinating if you look into, in particular, uh, Serbian spirituality, and you look into the beliefs that existed before Christianity and a lot of the traditions that stayed around with the, the pagan tribes who were eventually be kind of converted over, a lot of those can be associated with the lore of vampires today. Uh, that's still very strong in parts of Eastern Europe. There are still many people who perform rituals and rites that most likely date back pre-Christianity and are all associated with keeping the dead dead. Yeah, and I know that there is some superstition about vampires in the Orthodox Church, which would make sense because Orthodoxy had a much stronger influence in Eastern Europe than it did Western Europe. And also the word vampire itself has a roots in Ukrainian, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, the word upir, uh, which eventually through many different switches in linguistics would become to take on the name vampire. 
It's difficult to say. That's definitely one of the it's likely one of the, candidates. One of the linguistic theories, yeah. Um, there are many, many different interpretations around this. Uh, there is a, a German word, which almost certainly is the origin for our English translation of the word vampire. And that's just vampir. So that is not too far away from where vampire would eventually end up. And it's French version, which we probably took directly into English from there. But it probably passed from Germany into France into England. And, and that's where we get our word vampire from. And that in of itself is actually very, very close to uh, many, many similar sounding words among many of the Slavic speaking uh, countries in that area. All with slightly different variations, but they all more or less mean kind of the same thing. Uh, which is to thrust violently or to impale. That's more or less what the, the meaning behind these root words all are. Uh, with the exception of the word that you are talking about, uh, upir, which is also very closely connected with a Turkish word, which means witch. Mm. So not too big of a stretch to see how these words all kind of came together and either one of them or both of them would inspire our word for vampire it's interesting that they use the word impale for it because that is of course the most common way that we associate with killing a vampire exactly is to impale it through the heart so vampires are fascinating because when when you think about a vampire today we've talked about this a little bit already you think about bella lugosi you think about an exotic elegant victorian period individual or a glittery teenager or a glittery teenager, if you're if you're so inclined or subjected to, in my case. Uh, you don't think of a bloated, discolored, rotting corpse. Right. And that's, of course, where the perception originally came from. Exactly. Yeah. If you lived in 15th century Europe, Central Europe, and Eastern Europe, and you were speaking about vampires, this is the image that would come to your mind. And this is the vampires of lore that were not so uh, so graceful. These were individuals who had died who for one of many different reasons depending on what region you're from there are different excuses for how vampires came into existence right uh, but they would rise from the dead many times there were people who had committed suicide in the christian era it was those individuals who had been blasphemous it was from those individuals who were essentially considered to be witches or were in cahoots with the devil uh and in parts of romania and Hungary, where it's still believed today, these were simply individuals who had something negative about their soul, and the soul lingered around for too long, festering inside the body, and thus reanimating it and bringing it back to life. Actually, I have a piece I'd like to share, uh, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Um, from Cohen Vermeer, and he talked about uh, this paper he wrote uh, about how vampires are the creatures of, in of the imagination. And at this point in time, you see a couple of interesting things. The cultural treatment of what people thought, they thought someone was a vampire, which was almost always a post-mortem thing. There are two examples. One is, a, I'll show this to Eric real quick, and you can see here. Eric, what does mm -hmm. that look like to you? Uh, that would be a skull with a very large stone stuck in the mouth. Correct. More specifically, a stone brick. And why do you think that would be? Well, there's several reasons for it, honestly. Um, one might assume initially by looking at it, that it's to prevent the uh, the creature from biting down. Right. But it's also probably more commonly associated with the uh, idea of the entry of the soul, and in this case, the re-entry of the soul. The mouth was considered to be uh, one p possible way for that soul to enter the body. Sure. So by obstructing the mouth quite violently in many cases, you're preventing that soul from re-entering and therefore reanimating. Correct. And the picture I'm showing, uh, Eric, I can't really show you guys, unfortunately, because it's not... 
I don't think I have the permission to, to use it. But it's from a, a photograph of a woman believed to have been a vampire from 1576. So, if you, if, if you go old. online and you Google medieval vampire burials, I can guarantee you several of them will come up with images that are similar to this. Yeah, this one is by Matteo Borini, if you're looking for the photographer. Yeah, and this is, this is a woman in Italy who was found. You'll find examples from throughout Europe, including also in Western Europe, uh, as far as Ireland. Yeah, Vermeer goes on to, to uh, explain what would be a common practice at this time which is that uh, grave diggers would reopen mass graves, as would often be the case, because you'd need to reopen them to add new people mm-hmm. to them, and would come across bodies who were bloated by fermented blood and gases, and their hair and nails would be expanded out. Really, it's not grown, but just we realize that the body's shifting in its volume, so hair that was already there is just being pushed out a little bit more to look like it's grown. And blood seeping from their mouths. And... Uh, basically, they were struck by this complexion mostly because of the fact that this fluid is, is swelling and it's creating an unnaturally lively look on in the skin. And uh, this is the the exact cultural perception that people thought, oh, these people who are resting now, probably because it's daytime and people are trying to go into their graves, um, have woken up at night and been feasting on the living and now are fattened off their blood are now just kind of resting in the meantime. For people who don't have any other no knowledge of medical science, this is a totally plausible explanation for what's going on, especially for as deeply of the spiritual people as you're talking about. Absolutely. And you'll find that uh, decomposition itself and the misunderstandings around it almost certainly led to the majority of breakouts of uh, vampire hysteria throughout throughout Europe. And it makes sense. Imagine yourself at that time. Imagine yourself not having uh, the education to understand what's going on and being confronted with something like this. Like you said it, they looked unnaturally lifelike. Here was somebody who may have been laid in the ground months ago, but because of the oftentimes cold conditions in Europe, particularly during the the fall and winter months, that is prime condition for preserving a body. And all depending on the soil composition, like I said, the weather, and the fact that when bodies do decompose, not every one body is going to decompose the exact same way. They're all going to be a little different. And when the body expands with those gases, even the tissues in the body get filled up. So it's not so much just the abdomen that is kind of expanding. It's just about everywhere around the body that seems to be a little more full. And somebody who had been suffering from a long illness beforehand or who had been very, very advanced in age may have seemed almost kind of skeletal near their death, and now here they open up the coffin, and they're filling out. So that that's pretty terrifying. Not only that, but it appears as if blood is seeping down from their mouth. Like they had just risen, fed on somebody, drank their blood, and the residue was still left behind. In reality, all that is is the blood that's seeped into the stomach, that's being pushed up forward by the gases and other fluids that are in the stomach that are trying to escape through the mouth, and the residues are just being left behind. So I would be freaked out. I think anybody would. I think even people today confronted with something like that without an understanding of how bodies decompose would also kind of be taken back by that. So yeah, for me, totally plausible. Absolutely makes sense. That's how how these ideas of vampires uh, kind of became associated with uh, these rotting corpses. Yeah, now, in any of your research, did you have any explanation for the fangs at all? Very little. Uh, Fangs are extremely uncommon 
an association with vampires up until our our modern retelling of vampires. And it kind of makes sense because the blood drinking is also kind of spotty and secondary. Depending on where you are in Europe, vampires are not always associated with the drinking of blood. Just undead creatures that taunt the living, basically. Yeah, and they have different abilities. There's even kind of like psychic vampires, if you will. And they're just draining the life force out of somebody. Mm -hmm. Uh, They cause illness. They cause sickness. They cause plague. They don't necessarily go around feeding on blood and turning people into other vampires. Uh, I read an interesting study that stated that uh, if the first known instance of a person being accused of a vampire, uh, which was uh, Jure Grando of Croatia back in 1672, this is the first person by name that we know of in history who was said to have died in uh, 1656, but had come back and was now you know, tormenting the, his, his local community. He was accused of being a vampire. If he had gone and bit somebody, turned them into a vampire... With the assumption that he would only need to feed, let's say, once a month, okay? Within two and a half years, he would have spawned enough vampires to have switched over the entire population of the world at that time to vampires. Yeah. So this plausibility of vampires being real, obviously, it's it's ridiculous. It's thrown out the window. Reanimating corpses is something that we talked about in our witchcraft right. episode with necromancy, and this is not this is not a reality. Sure. Uh, this is a superstition. But uh, And, of course, these are people who would come out at night when no one could see them uh, to explain why they were raising their mischief. Not necessarily. I mean, a lot of the accounts come from nighttime and they come from graveyards because, no surprise, this is where bodies are being buried. This is where they would come to life and emerge from. But a lot of vampires, early vampire legends, are also associated with animals. And it was believed that the, the animals themselves were the form of uh, the vampire that would take if it wanted to be more mobile. Well, what do you find with graveyards? scavengers of course you're going to find wolves and other canids and other animals lurking around the graveyard so it was just associating those bad omens and it's tying it into something in this case it was it was vampires and of course bats i mean the nomenclature of a bat doesn't come around until much later either so much later that some people have suggested it it didn't even come about until no more than a hundred years ago and yet only probably because of the parallel because there are bats that do live on blood on plasma uh, the vampire bats or the fact that bats have had a long history of being these devil-like creatures well the thing is bats in south america which are where the vampire bats are exclusively from uh, those are the only ones that feed on blood and those weren't known to europe until around the 1950s so there's no way that that could have been the tie-in for bats in Europe tying into vampires, but more so the fact that they were nocturnal creatures. Like you said, they're very uh, ghoulish and devilish in their appearance. And if we are talking about vampires taking the form of animals very early in their lore, it makes sense that eventually bats would probably be drawn into the mix. Because if you're talking about evil creatures, remember, this is still a culture that is very day and night centric, day being the positive light, the night dark being all when evil can come out and lurk. Again, not too much of a stretch to associate a nocturnal creature with an evil uh, creature like you're talking about. Yeah. So. Just just to return really quickly to the idea of decomposition, and it's just misunderstanding. Something I found really interesting is a, as a common burial practice in most Serbian countries, a uh, very long time ago that was, was to include in the burial a scythe or other very sharp object. Why do you think that might be? With the grave of the... Yeah, in the actual burial, in the in the coffin of the individual. Why would you give the vampire a weapon? That's the only... <laughs> uh, 
Go ahead. Please explain. Okay. So essentially, as the body would begin to expand and, and grow larger with gases. Oh, it was supposed to impa- supposedly impale itself on the, on the scythe. I exactly. Think. And cause those gases to expel. So they almost had an understanding of what was going on. They, they knew that if you impaled the body with a stake, for example, those gases would be released. And if you think about that, and you think about the psychological effect that that would have, here's this corpse, kind of almost looks like it's still alive, very darkened flesh, very demonic, scary looking. It may even be groaning. This is a fascinating process that happens with decomposition. Sometimes bodies, as those gases are being expelled and released... You let like a sigh or a groan from the mouth, yeah. Not only that, but also in the intestines, you sometimes have bodies that that contort and, and move. They can actually move right there in front of you, even though the person has been dead for weeks, just the way that the gases are being released. So witnessing this and then plunging a stake through that body, the violent release of those gases... Makes them look like they're dying again. Exactly. It's crazy when you really think about it. The, the, the psychological effect that that would have on people killing this individual again, right? Putting this person to final rest... Oh my God, they, the stories obviously would run rampant, and they would. All throughout the 17th and 18th century, what had happened previously with some, some mild outbreaks of, of vampire hysteria were now exploding across Europe. And uh, this is where you find people trying to protect themselves from vampires in any way. In the 17th and 18th century, now giving us some of our greatest examples of how to ward off vampires and keep them from killing you. Sure, and this is, and it's interesting that you bring up the 18th century uh, because that's really when vampire literature started to develop. The first known one is literally just simply called The Vampire from 1748 by Heinrich August Ostenfelder. Oh, um, awesome name. Yeah. Um, and the story is about a man whose love was rejected by a respectable and pious maiden. And he threatens to pay her nightly visits and drink her blood by giving her the seductive kiss of the vampire, which is, in other words, just biting her neck and proving to her that he's more superior. Kind of a dark story. But this so frightened people that um, they actually exhumed the bodies of people who were uh, supposedly uh, had been executed uh, for being vampires. And these stories became so popular that in the 1720s and 30s, there was a vampire craze, you know? Uh, and the two people that so they were they re-exhumed the bodies of two people who were suspected to be vampires. Uh, we know we know their names, uh, and this is of course in Serbia, uh, Peter Plagojevic and Arnold Paoli uh, were both basically executed under the Habsburg monarchy. Uh, their bodies were re-exhumed just to double check to see if they were or to keep them in check to probably have them staked. Um, and this is just one example. That's the first one. One famous one was by the author Goethe, a guy who redid Faust. Goethe was known for redoing other stories. His was from 1797 called The Bride of Corinth. And it was a story of a young Christian girl who is betrothed to a pagan. And basically, she dies, but she returns from the grave to be with her betrothed. So you start to see a romantic element start to come back into this. Um, and yes, she is trying to kill her betrothed, but it's not to taunt him. So, it's so that she can be with him. Yeah. Again, the the trend of vampires coming back and taunting their relatives is a pretty common theme across the whole history of vampires. The, what's interesting, though, is that Goethe actually based the story off of a Greek story called uh, the Valenian by Phlegon of Trails. Um, 
but there was no element of vampirism in there. The story was just about a girl coming back to life to be with her betrothed um, from the underworld. Well, it's a parallel that you see in a lot of different vampire lore. Many times, one of the defining reasons for why these people are coming back is because of this jealousy of the living, or they want to be around the living. They want to, they want to impress them. They want to be with them again, and they're rejected, and so they they act quite violently as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is something that is has very very deep roots, but is clearly being now taken advantage of by these these authors who are now playing with it. Well, there's a little altering quote, it. There's a little verse here that I'm going to recite from it. Uh, from the Bride of Corinth. From my grave to wander I am forced, still to seek a God's long-severed link, still to love the bridegroom I have lost, and the lifeblood of his heart to drink. So it's almost like she's being cursed to, to live this existence. As we go on into the early 1800s, we have another epic poem called The Gyor by uh, Lord Byron, the famous English poet. And he has a whole element that talks about the folklore perception of vampires. And I'll just recite that real quick as well. Um, but first on earth as vampires sent, thy corpse shall from its tomb be rent. Then ghastly haunt thy native place and suck the blood of all thy race. Therefrom thy daughter, sister, wife, at midnight drain the stream of life. Yet loathe the banquet which perforce must feed thy livid living corpse. Thy victims, ere they yet expire, shall know the demon for their sire. As cursing thee, thou cursing them, thy flowers are withered on the stem. Ooh. That's freaky. Damn, does he got away with words, too, right? Yeah. Oh. This is only about 12 lines of text, but he already explains so much about the... The, the nature of vampires. The nature of vampires, Exactly. Uh, and the fact that just I love the imagery of saying his tomb is rent, or that now he becomes their dominion. You no, know, the, their demon is their sire. The demon is their uh, their overlord. And of course, how poetic! Thy flowers are withered on the stem, <laughs> from the very place of life. It is now dead, right? So, very source of life. It is now dead. What I find interesting about Lord Byron, Lord Byron was friends with a couple different people that you might have interest from. And if you guys are our loyal listeners, you will know this from our Curse of the Podcast episode done last October near Halloween. Lord Byron was friends with the Shelleys, Percy Bysshe Shelley and Mary Shelley. Of course, Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, and with uh, an author, John William Polidori, who is uh, actually Byron's personal physician. Hmm. Polidori, in 1819, wrote the first vampire novel, The Vampire. Vampire with a Y. That's French spelling, I believe. Yes. Or probably the old English spelling as well. His vampire was, of course, the aristocratic undead protagonist, Lord Ruthven. Why is this so important? Well, now we're starting to see a vampire take on an aristocratic character. A person who is well-known and powerful, maybe not super powerful, uh, in the peerage, but someone who had attained enough of a social status. Certainly somebody with wealth. Someone with wealth, exactly. And now we're starting to see this association with vampires and that part of society. Very, very interesting. Mm. Almost like they were trying to say something. I wonder what it could have been. <laughs> Maybe the, is the aristocracy was sucking the life out of the rest of the, of the, <laughs> of the people. Uh, likely, yes. Yeah, probably. What I find really funny about this is this was a seminal work, so much so that it inspired 
no fewer than half a dozen either unauthorized sequels or reinterpretations as plays all over Europe. In mm. Germany, it was done as uh, as, uh, as an opera. Uh, it was done at the, the English Opera House at the Lyceum. It was also done in Scotland. Um, it was done all over the place. Alexandre Dumas, the famous author of The Three Musketeers, also had his hand at redramatizing the story in 1851, so it went to France, obviously. What I find really funny is that there was an interpretation done in 1852, and Queen Victoria herself saw the play, and she wrote it down in her diary as being very trashy. <laughs> <laughs> so, though actually that one was a, a, uh, an offshoot uh, vampire. His name was Sir Alan Raby. Um, but nevertheless, no, you have a sir, you have a knight, you have someone who is, again, of, of a higher social position taking on a vampirical form. So it's still, I think, a derivative of the Lord Ruthven character or archetype now that you're starting to see. Let's take a pause on this for a second, because I meant to ask you this earlier, and I totally goofed on it. My apologies. What were the remedies in this era for killing vampires up to this point? Well, I think it's a pretty logical tie-in, right? Because we find some of the most iconic representations in this literature being presented to people for the first time uh, who were not in communities where, where vampires were really you know, seen as being common, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely was throughout Europe, but there were some centralized locations where a lot of those remedies kind of were born out of their ancient folklore, many times going back pre-Christian times. So garlic, for example. Garlic is highly iconic as being a, a way of warding off uh, vampires. And this is something that is purely Slavic. Uh, this is something that goes back pre-Christianity and has long time been a way of, of warding off not just vampires, but the undead in general. Yeah, because garlic was seen as a medicinal plant. Common misconception, it's because of the breath that you would have after eating it. Yes. <sighs> No. Okay, no, that's not true. However, uh, <laughs> many of the other methods for killing the vampire, right? So the stake through the heart, we talked about that. We talked about that being very much a Slavic tradition and the releasing of the gases, how you know effective that was. Decapitation goes back even further than that. You find what are called deviant burials. And these go back, like I said, really, really, really long ago. Uh, you find some examples among mass graves like you were talking about uh, earlier, you know, these ones with the, the stones in the mouth. But many times they would actually decapitate the head and place it down in between the legs or down by the feet or completely and totally crush the individual under very large stones, deforming the body, preventing them from rising mm -hmm. and, and coming up again. So you see a lot of that in that lore around vampires and how to kill vampires. When it comes to warding them off and keeping them away from you, you have uh, examples where when the Christian tradition started to come on in, those became assim assimilated and associated with the cross, for example. Uh, vampires having no reflection in the mirror is most likely a reflection of themselves not having any kind of soul. Uh, you find uh, stories about vampires not having shadows. That, again, is also very, very heavily influenced by the Christian tradition, because something that uh, didn't have a shadow essentially wasn't there, wasn't present, so it was spectral in its nature. Fangs, like I said, are kind of hit or miss. You have some examples of them, not a whole lot, but if you think about a natural way of letting blood out of a body, it would help to have a pair of fangs. You know, animals sure. have fangs. You also could have situations where during certain decompositions, the gum would retract and over the canine teeth, and oh, thus yeah. giving the illusion of having longer fangs. Absolutely. Normal. So, you know, that doesn't seem like that far-fetched either. Uh, the aversion of sunlight. Again, very, very old tradition, whereas vampires were considered to be 
pretty much strictly nocturnal creatures, again, like the animals that represented them and what have mm-hmm. you. Drowning vampires, setting vampires on fire, essentially doing all these things that would destroy and eliminate a body could kill a vampire in old European tradition. What you have happening as it moves forward in time, the sense of immortality, the sense that these vampires are almost invincible. And that is something that pops up pretty much strictly in the literature of the 18th and 19th century. People wanted to kill vampires. People wanted to take bodies that they found and destroy them and have that peace of mind knowing that these vampires, these ghouls, these people who were coming back to life were now gone. Whereas in a narrative, in a story, that's really not that exciting. You want the protagonist to continue on and think that they're dead, but they're not really dead. They're well, the of undead. course, because you're you're humanizing them. You know, the moment you get to these points where you make the vampire the protagonist, they're no longer this soulless creature that you want to destroy. Yes, you eventually they eventually end up being destroyed in some way or another, or people want to destroy them because of what they are. But they're much more elegant. Mm-hmm. And none could be so elegant as, well, the, the coup de grace of vampires, uh, which we'll get to in just a moment. One thing I did want to say about the late 1800s stories is you do start to see a couple other things. Uh, One is Carmilla from 1872, which was a lesbian vampire, uh, which, I mean, considering for its time period, shocking. But then then again, this association with eroticism we start to see uh, come up again after the the initial Mesopotamian roots that you were referring to. Um, But we also see the first vampire literature published by a woman. It was called uh, The Skeleton Count or... The Vampire Mistress, and this was in 1828. And there's another example, too, of uh, the Penny Dreadful epic called Varney the Vampire, featuring Sir Francis Varney as the vampire. Penny Dreadfuls, by the way, were novels that were written uh, that were only cost a penny, and they were usually called Penny Dreadfuls because they usually were not very good. <laughs> so that's the name that they, uh, they caught on. Kind of like pulp novels, really. Same, same kind of concept, but an early precursor to that. Can you imagine a Barney the Purple Dinosaur was Varney the Vampire? Barney the Vampire? How different our childhoods would have turned out. Oh, dear God. <laughs> wow, that makes the I Love You song even more frightening. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, you fear me, I want your blood to sustain me, so I'll bite you in the neck and turn you into one of me. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I just think the original, original lyrics are terrifying on their own. If you're thinking of a vampire, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. <laughs> we're a happy couple With a great big hug and a kiss from me to you. <laughs> Won't you say you love me too? <laughs> you're right. It is absolutely, it's uncanny. <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying. My God, Barney was a vampire. <laughs> there actually is pictures of Barney as a vampire for that their Halloween episode. Barney and Gumby, both vampires. Our childhoods have been destroyed. <laughs> destroyed forever. If you're a kid listening to this podcast, why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and two, if you're a kid these days listening to the podcast, you probably don't know what Barney and Gumby are. Yeah. So why? <laughs> so we'll, we'll skip ahead, of course, because now we got to get to the coup de grace. There's tons of vampire stories that were done in the 19th century and from all over Europe. At this point, you can say the vampire lore had firmly gained its its footing yeah. in Western Europe. Oh, yeah. It was here and it wasn't going anywhere. Which would certainly inspire none other than Irishman Bram Stoker to write his own take on it, which is... Dracula. Dracula, right? 
We talked a lot about in the Curse of the Podcast the real Vlad Tepish. We didn't really talk too much about Dracula, what Dracula was. We talked a little bit, but not much. Dracula is an amalgam, I would say. If you think about it, he's an aristocratic character. Again, you see the roots of Lord Ruthven and the other these aristocratic or landed gentry people who are also working as vampires. But not only that, when you're looking for what was Stoker looking for as his main character, well, where do these stories come from? They come from Eastern Europe. And it so happens that when he was doing research on the origins of vampires, he came across Wallachia, you know, which is where, of course, Vlad Tepish is from. Vlad Tepish yeah. is from, right? And there are, of course, many real horror stories of Vlad Tepish, and I'm quoting uh, this paper called What Stoker Saw, is what it's called. Uh, basically, what was his uh, his inspiration. And there's a couple things that happened. Uh, particularly speaking of the folklore of Hungary and Romania, um, there is kind of a connection between Dracula and uh, vampirism. One is the story of Elizabeth Bathory, who is the mm. infamous 17th century countess from the Carpathians who was a straight up psychopath yeah called the vampire lady because she drank and bathed in the blood of virgins and if you ever hear that kind of colloquialism now oh I bathed in the blood of virgins or something you hear that that Mm -hmm. whole thing this is where it's coming from because she killed an approximated 650 virgins before she was uh, walled up in her room in 1611 that was her punishment they just like sealed her into a room and let her die so you know you, you hear about this notorious countess and you think, well, I want my character to be male, so let's make him a count. Okay. Not that, that Dracula bathed and drank the blood of virgins, um, though I'm sure he drank the blood but didn't bathe in them. Um, hey, you don't know that. Exactly. He could have had a lovely jacuzzi set up of virgin blood. And you, you don't so know that. The Countess is from the same geographical region as as Vlad Tepish was, so you've got Count and Dracula right there, right? Now he begins to start to color it a little bit more and starts adding other elements of Romanian folklore that, that are critical to dracula's supernatural powers like the association with wolves as you were talking about mm-hmm. before right because he was known for being able to shapeshift into wolves points of light right uh, the introduction of saint george's eve as a time where evil spirits roam freely on the earth saint george is very popular in the eastern europe because he slayed dragons before the day of his feast day where you would assume that before that would be a day where evil could roam the earth pretty freely and also this is the first time in literature where you hear you see garlic as the remedy of repelling vampires, again, from the same region. So you can tell that Stoker was drawing very heavily off of the traditions of vampires uh, when he was crafting his story. He still very much twisted it to his own idea of this romanticized version of the vampire. Again, sure. he saw in the guise of Mina his lost love, right? That was, the, that was his whole reason for wanting to pursue her, uh, even though it wasn't her at all. And again, it's that feeling of not so much hunting for your family, but going back to the person that you you're, you were connected to. Stoker had hundreds of years of traditions, folklore, imagery, everything he wanted, really, pretty much in Eastern Europe to, to inspire him to create the Dracula that he wanted, to create the vampire that he wanted. And he did such an amazing job that its effects are still being felt today. Dracula well, yeah, he- has never been out of print. And it's always been in print. Yeah, there have been over a thousand films made featuring Dracula in some form or another across the world. That's incredible. Right. Dracula is the single most filmed character, I think, in all of cinema. It would make sense. Yeah. It really would. 
And think about his other influences, uh, right? The famous 1920s silent film Nosferatu, which was the exact same story, but Murno couldn't get the rights from the Stoker estate, so they just changed the name to Count Orlock. Right. And changed a couple names around. A little less romantic, a little more terrifying. Yeah. You also have in the 1950s, of course, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, right? Talking about a post-apocalyptic vampirical storyline, right? Which, which is if, one man left. Which, if you're like me and you saw the, the recent film adaptation, you actually thought zombie as opposed to vampire. But uh, after you told me about that original intention for them to be more, more vampire-like creatures... I went back and watched the film again, and it, it did kind of make sense. Yeah. Uh, that movie was actually adapted three times. The Last Man on Earth was the first one with Vincent Price in 1964. Hmm. Uh, the Omega Man with Charlton Heston in 1971. And then finally, the I Am Legend from 2007 with Will Smith as uh, the lead part. So you have those. And then, by the way, then you also have you know, the, the TV. You know, we start seeing in other new media. We have the Dark Shadows soap opera, which my mom loved as a kid. Such um, a cool so, idea. And, and so hokey at the same time. And there was a novel series based on the Barnabas Collins um, storyline. Probably the, the biggest one of the modern era, other than the Twilight films, is The Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice. She played off of the gothic elements and then also brought them into the modern era, particularly looking at the vampire Lestat. If you look at the way he's dressed and the way where he came from, you're talking about, again, 18th century Europe, right? From a, a presumably wealthy background. So this gothic vampire image is being perpetuated by uh, these authors. And uh, Anne Rice was certainly known for making her stuff erotic, too. So, You know, I, I love Rice's vampires for a lot of different reasons. And for me, the, the way they resonate is just how human they are and how completely tormented they are by being vampires. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I think that is so compelling for a character. Yeah, there's this constant conflict between them being a person and then being stuck with the nature of what they've become. Yeah, they're they're so self-loathing yet they simply cannot give up, which is the reason why they exist, right? They they long for life, they don't want to give it up, but then the life that they're given, quote unquote, life is uh, is anything but. Right. And uh, I I I think that's neat. I think the idea of vampires being around since ancient times or prehistoric times and, and watching civilizations fall and be born and fall again. Something about that, I, I, probably just the historian in me, finds that to be fascinating. Yeah. And what's interesting is now you're starting to see vampires become much more protagonistic. Dracula, yes, you can sympathize with him, but he's still the villain of the story, right? It's you no know, John Harker and Professor Van Helsing that are really the, the, the heroes of the story. Of, of Dracula. When you get to, I mean, we we can't be nerds on history and not talk about Joss Whedon for a moment. No, oh, of course. Right? Because he contributed Buffy the Vampire Slayer to the Vampire Lexicon. You have Angel, you know, a, a vampire who was killing other vampires. <laughs> we ends up becoming well, he ends up character. becoming his own show. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but being a dominant character, the boyfriend of the main character who slays vampires. And of course, you have the HBO series True Blood, which is really ingenious for a couple reasons. One, it resets the whole vampire lore to being in the South, in Louisiana, where, you know, of course, vampires are across the world at this point, but this is where the, the main element, uh, the main drama takes place. You've got other horror characters starting to be worked into, but you have Sookie Stackhouse, who is uh, telepathic, uh, so she can sense kind of otherworldly creatures. Then eventually you get Bill Compton, played by Stephen Moyer, who is the kind of the main love interest for a long time. Uh, and he's a vampire who, again, is kind of reluctant to be a vampire. He just kind of is one. 
doesn't like having to be forced. There's a scene in their first season where he has to kill somebody and convert her to being an, a vampire. Uh, and he doesn't want to, but if he doesn't do it, he's going to get killed by this this clan of vampires that are uh, in that region of the country. God, so, it's like working an awful office job. Exactly. And then, of course, you have Eric Northman, played by Alexander Skarsgård. And these three characters alone, if you want to talk about eroticism and vampires, these three pretty much sell it because... Let's just look just, just look at the marketing ads for it. They're pretty much naked. <laughs> let's just call it what it is. It's, it's vampire porn. Pretty much, yeah. And then later on they start working in werewolves into it too. So now you have this now this more recent trend of seeing werewolves and vampires being warring races against one another. I really hate as that. As well. It was I don't of course like made that. popular by Underworld. Good movies, but uh, I don't know. It just doesn't jive with me. They, they right. need to exist separately. So you know, really now the vampire is less of an antagonistic character, more just this fantastical creature who, yes, there are certain rules that it has to follow because you know of the vampire lore, but it's not so much now this soulless creature anymore. It's more of a condition <laughs> and less of a, it's of more a, of an of a creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Unless you count the movie Priest, because that one, mm. the vampires are these kind of these insect-like creatures. They have hives. They're grown. Right. There's, there's a queen vampire who can spawn other vampires and then she gives birth to the first human vampire yeah uh, as the their lore goes well are we going to talk about it the elephant in the room bella lugosi no <laughs> the twilight series oh yeah i guess we have to don't we i mean if we're going to talk about modern alliterations of vampires we kind of have to talk about yeah i mean this fits in with the modern concept or the postmodern concept because really the modern concept of vampires is what we were talking about with stoker and you know and byron and all these other characters that that was the modern era we're in the postmodern era now yes stephanie meyer's enchanting series uh (laughs) does deal with vampires um to from both sides you again you have the traditional Vampires of Vulturi, who are these more royalistic, very, again, very aristocratic looking, but very soulless, kind of lacking any form of humanity. People who regulate the world, they kind of govern the world of vampires, not officially, but they're they're a very powerful clan, so they tend to. And then you've got the, you know, Team Edward, as it were. You know, you've got the... The Collins. The, the, the Collins, yes. Who are uh, the quote-unquote vegetarians of the vampire world. They drink blood of animals. They don't drink the blood of humans. Um, they will only do it unless it is absolutely necessary. Carlyle makes Edward a vampire because he has to, because otherwise Edward's going to die of Spanish flu if he doesn't. It's embarrassing that I know this much about it, but... Um, you know, I'm right there with you. My wife, I love her to death, but she's dragged my ass to each and every one of those movies. And I lean literally dragged me. Most of the time, actual physical force was used to seat me in the theater. I did it because I love her, and I did it because if I didn't, I'd be in the doghouse. But I found something kind of interesting, because as I was watching these movies, which I have to admit, I couldn't remember which movie fell into where after a while. They all just kind of blended together. That's probably fine. That's okay. I felt that this was a missed opportunity. And I've never read the books, and I don't intend to. So I don't know how much they differ from the movie, but from what I'm told, they're actually pretty close. They're the, fairly close from what I understand it as well. Yeah. yeah, they're pretty faithful. What an amazing story they could have told here. And I know that there are those out there who who like it, and you know what? I'm I'm not trying to be mean or anything. I'm not trying to hate on it. I just I just really just don't care for the movies. If you do, if you love the books, go for it. More power to you. 
I just think they could have done something truly fantastic with this story. Because see, to think about it, it is kind of a neat idea. Here are these vampires who know that they can't reveal themselves to everybody else, yet they're completely and totally okay with living among people and trying to make as unassuming a life as possible. And then uh, going ahead and, like you said, being very vegetarian, right? Feasting on animals, but protecting and, and caring for even sentient life. That's kind of neat. Here you have all these great backstories. You had all these opportunities to go into great detail and tell about how each of these members of this family became a member of that family. And they did. Okay, maybe it's just in the movie where they just kind of briefly touch on that. I think each book could have been an introduction to each of these characters and how they came into the family. And even been kind of in a, this tale of a flashback retelling. But I think that each character could have been focused on in each of these books. And if they wanted to keep that Bella character, the, the, the human who wants to become a vampire, because now she understands the vampires in their family and, and idolizes that and sees it as something that, that she wants to be a part of, she could be the final book in that chapter. It could be her story about how she comes into that family. It didn't have to be the teenage love triangle that it ended up being with uh, Hamster Boy. Uh, I don't know the name of the actor, but I think he looks like a hamster. The the, the other, uh, what's, there's Team Edward and there's Team... Team Jacob. Jacob, or yeah, Hamster Taylor, Boy. Taylor Lautner is the actor who yeah. played him. I think he just looks like a hamster. I don't know what it is. A very buff hamster, apparently. Yeah, I'm not saying he doesn't have guns. I'm just saying he looks kind of like a hamster. Yeah, okay. So... <laughs> I, 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 can, I can see what you're saying. Yet, uh, all of that could have been thrown out. And they could have, you know, replaced it with the other 80% of the story, which would have been much more interesting that they could have elaborated on. Well, you know, my girlfriend at the time took me to see Twilight. And then we watched uh, New Moon. But we didn't, that, that was as far as we went. Lucky you. Yeah. 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 I was just going to go with it. I wasn't going to make any judgments. I thought the Twilight movie was okay. I mean, it in retrospect, it's not a very solid movie at all. But I, it was passable. It wasn't like I could, it wasn't like it was the worst thing ever. Plus, again, I was with my girlfriend at the time. Brownie points. Yeah, you, exactly. You just, guys, you understand. You do what you gotta do. Mm-hmm. Though garlic probably would have come in very handy in this circumstance, <laughs> too. Though it also would have not just killed the vampire movie, it would have also killed my love life. So, I didn't do that. But what I find was interesting was that Meyer was gonna do another whole other version of the uh, series from Edward's perspective, because everything in the Twilight Saga, from Bella's, yeah. from Bella's perspective. So she wrote a book called Midnight Sun, or she had started to write a book called Midnight Sun, but then uh, a chapter of it leaked out, and because it was broken out, she ended up canceling the series. Um, and for a lot of people who were fans of that, that was disappointing to them, because they really wanted to see a whole other perspective on it. And from what I understand, because uh, the girlfriend uh, in question uh, had read all the books, uh, they do go into a lot of backstory as to each have how the Cullen uh, members got there because they weren't all good. No, no, I understand that, and I think that if they had made that the the focus of all the books, they had used that to propel the narrative and bring everyone together. I think that would have been much more effective, and I think they should do that. You know, because look at all these examples through history we have, of people taking previous vampire literature that was popular and then building on it and making it better. Let's do it at Twilight. I know yeah. it's only been a couple of years, but hey, let why, why the hell not? Let's we should yeah. totally rewrite that from from that that perspective yeah. of let's really dive into how each of these people become a family and right. explain the family element of it. And as far as her tweaking the vampire mythos, that's nothing new. People have again the mythos change over time. 
she was just trying to re-explain, re-come up with explanations for why things were there were like the for example the, the aversion to sunlight was yeah. because their skins are, are as hard as diamond and of course they will sparkle a little bit i think the way they did it in the movies was a little ridiculous they could have done it a little bit better i think the entire sentence that you just said was ridiculous yeah if their skin is as hard as diamond then why is it fleshy why is it soft that doesn't make any sense neither does the fact that they <sighs> it doesn't make sense if they're out in the sunlight and they're sparkling then they should be so rigid that they cannot move that should be the thing. They don't die. They just get really stiff and reflective. I could, I could have lived with that. The sun doesn't turn their skin into diamond. It, already, it is what it is already. But, it just, but it's not. <laughs> this is why you don't send a sci-fi guy to a vampire romance movie. No, no. You just don't send him to Twilight movies. Ugh. That just didn't make any Again, sense. I'm not defending the films at all. At all but I'm just saying, I, I applaud her for trying to re-explain things, come up with a new explanation for how things were, even if she was not very successful in, in pulling it off. That's fine. Give me something plausible. Stake through heart, that's plausible. Stake cancels effect yeah. of heart. I kind of like, though, the fact that, you know, you pretty much the way you kill a vampire in that story, you pretty much have to tear it apart. That's the only way you can... That's cool. Don't have a problem with that. That heralds back to vampire traditions for hundreds of years, you know, yeah. dismembering the body. I have a problem with shiny vampires. That's all I'm saying. Okay. You and millions, and I, I take a neutral stance on it. <laughs> I really don't care. Sorry. If that angers any nerds, sorry. <laughs> never was never a huge fan of vampires myself as a kid. Used to be terrified of the Dracula films. Mm. And then I saw Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a brilliant <sighs> version. A great telling. And arguably the truest version to Stoker's novel. Yeah. Very much so. Um, and also truer to the image of Vlad Tepish, too, at the same time. Because they drew off a lot of the paintings of Vlad Tepish as the design for the non-vampiric-looking right. uh, Vlad character that, that Gary Oldman plays. Uh, and Gary Oldman, my God, brilliant actor. Uh, you hated him and felt sad for him at the same time. And later would return to act besides a bat. <laughs> exactly. Instead of being the bat, he he helped the bat. As you said, vampires are such a pervasive part of our culture. We're fascinated by mortality. We're fascinated by being able to somehow transcend mortality and feed off of uh, those we care about. No pun intended. Yeah. Um, to the point now where there's there are subcultures in our existing world of people who are convinced of they are a vampire of uh, some kind. Uh, you mentioned psychic vampires. There are people there who believe that they, they live off of the aura of others and that they are the truer vampires than the blood-sucking vampires. And there are people who are sanguinarians and people who actually believe they need to survive off of the blood of the living. And there are also blood donors, people who are okay with being bitten and have their blood drinking uh, by vampires. And they are treated with the utmost respect by these people in the vampire cultures because technically, you know, since most people don't give it up that often, you don't want (laughs) to abuse your your quote-unquote food source or whatever source of sustenance, whether it's emotional, nutrient-based, or, I don't know, sexual, I guess. Yeah, um, well, I mean, hey, if you think about it, what it is is a really intimate way of connecting with somebody, right? You're consuming their blood. You're taking a part of them and literally making it your own because some of that blood will eventually kind of be absorbed into your into your body through your stomach lining. So you have to be careful, obviously, in, in an age where bloodborne diseases are... Uh, much better understood than they ever have been, and uh, much deadlier than they ever have been. You have to uh, be very, very cautious. But if it's your thing, you know, that's cool. Go for it. Don't have yeah. a problem with it. Uh, how many people, you know, suck on a, on, you know, a cut that they've gotten? 
and tasted their blood. Folks, please reach out to us. Tell us what your favorite version of vampires are. If you want to you know, hate on the Twilight series, go ahead and do that too. Share with us your favorite elements of vampire lore. And you, can, of course, can do that by going to our social media on Facebook and on Twitter or through our emails uh, at I'm at Brian at Neuronomy.com. Eric is at The Brickmont. That's right. The Brickmont. Or our personal Twitter accounts. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at The Brickmont. No shock there. Shocking. Pretty much the same names. And hit us up. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Absolutely. And we know that we have listeners from around the world and we have quite a following in Europe as well. So if you happen to be from the very deeply saturated lands of Eastern, Eastern Europe. The Eastern and, Europe. Yeah, yeah and, we've and got a couple you, people there, yeah. And you uh, you are right in the thick of it, and you experience uh, even some of the prevailing vampire lore that's still there today, and traditions yeah. and customs that are, that are still in existence in funerals. Yeah, we didn't even touch some of the, the stories that are from Northern Europe. There are vampire stories in Holland. There are vampire stories in... Uh, yeah, in Holland. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps other places in Northern Europe, like Norway, Sweden. Sure. Absolutely. Right? Places where there's been that influence, there's been that cultural exchange. You yeah. Know? So, absolutely, folks, please share with us your uh, your stories about vampires. Indeed. And uh, tell us, if you ever went as a vampire for Halloween, what was your take on it? Did you do the traditional gothic vampire that we're used to more today, or did you do something something wild with it? Did you did you go sparkly skin? Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to uh, next week's episode as a little teaser for you folks as we continue with our spooktacular nerdonomy Halloween month. We'll be talking about monsters. Folks, monsters is a very broad topic, but it's fun because we can talk about werewolves, we can talk about swamp creatures, we can talk about all kinds of fun and dark beings. And we're going to go global on this one, because the past two episodes have definitely Chupacabra? been... Chupacabra? Oh, yes. Oh, thank God. Which is actually more like a vampire, which we could have talked about this episode, <laughs> but that's okay. Oh, it literally uh, means sucker of goats, so it doesn't... Yeah, you know. yeah exactly. We're definitely going to go global. We focused very heavily on two traditional European folkloric traditions over the past two episodes, witches and vampires. But with monsters, we can go anywhere in the world. Uh, and we're going to have a lot of fun with that one. So join us next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye! Am Asmach.